Hello and welcome back to What China Wants with me, Sam Olson. Um, sadly, Stuart cannot be with us today because he's on family duty, but she's going to be missing out on a fantastic talk we've got lined up with Andrew Wong. This is part of our new cultural series that we're doing in conjunction to all the politics and economics that we've been spending the last year on. Andrew, it's incredibly nice to have you on uh, to talk about um, Chinese cuisine. Welcome along. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. Always good to uh, escape from the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we're just recording this and the week running up to Christmas, which in retrospect is quite a busy time for Andrew to take time out of his schedule. So thank you very much for agreeing to be part of this. But if I could just go on to uh, your uh, your bio. So you're a third generation chef and you own the restaurant A Wong in Pembroke in London. And I think you went there, you spent six months traveling around China preparing for that, if I'm right. Yeah, I mean, I grew up between London and Hong Kong to start with. And, and obviously a lot of my family are in the industry and a lot of my distant relatives are also in hospitality in, in Hong Kong. But yeah, they, I mean, the, the trip primarily was really because I never really planned to be a chef. And so one thing led to another, and it came to a point where it was very much, well, if you're going to open a Chinese restaurant, you should really go and, you know, go and spend some time with some friends that you have all over China and see what's going on. Um, and so packed my bags. I was meant to go with someone. They pulled out last minute, which is a bit annoying. So <laughs> ended up being a blessing, actually, because, it, you know, it's traveling by yourself. Sometimes you become really self-reliant. Everything becomes very kind of... Um, internal and an individual as an experience um, and it was very much about me learning and trying to relate it to what we could possibly do in London if we were to open a restaurant that was what, six months it, it felt like a lot longer actually because while we were out there I was also building a restaurant and um, while I was there uh, which made it uh, doubly interesting so the, the architects the designers I was I was getting set, sent like 50 samples of wallpaper each day you know 50 samples of like possible chairs <laughs> at the same time while I was working in these hotels in in China luckily because of the time difference it actually works out quite well you know there's a break in the middle of the day that's a perfect time for when London starts up again yeah you check all the emails during that break then you go back after work and so it ended up being this cycle of basically building a restaurant and, and trying to learn and work in, in hotels and restaurants for several months. Is that the restaurant that you now uh, run in, in Pimlico that you're building? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the restaurant that we have in Pimlico originally was my father's restaurant. And then while I was at university, he passed away. Oh, sorry. So we kind of, we, we left it for a while while I was kind of deciding what I wanted to do and worked um, around London. And then... Um, only well he died in 2004 it was only in about 2010 did we really think okay this is what we want to do let's try to put a plan together of how to how to make it happen and and so um your father was also in a restaurant but was it your grandfather as well yeah my grandfather had a restaurant in chinatown right when did he come over to the uk so he came over to the uk in the 70s so he first had a restaurant in a town in the midlands called Naneaton. I don't know if it's familiar to anyone. I grew up in in Leicestershire, so I used to go to Nuneaton just because uh, my granny lived nearby. So, yeah, uh, that's not an ideal place to have a, uh, a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, um, you know but it's interesting. I think it's, I mean, for me to go back um, when we do, it's quite interesting because you really get to see how something such as Chinese cuisine, in inverted commas, how it gets um, expressed in different ways according to different demographics. 
even within the UK. You know, sometimes, you know, I do I do a lot of these interviews and sometimes we, we talk about Chinese food across Europe. You know, we talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, in, in Paris, there's a very big Vietnamese community. So therefore, the Chinese food is kind of Vietnamese slanted in some way. If you go to kind of Holland, there's a lot of uh, people from Suriname and Indonesia who kind of um, look after the Chinese restaurants. So there's a reinterpretation of the cuisine there. But actually, even within the UK, Chinese food is expressed very, very differently between different regions within the UK. Yeah. So um, actually, coming back to living in the UK after a long time living in Asia and spending so much time in China, I was quite interested to go to the local Chinese for dinner to see what it was like. It was very different. It was Cantonese, theoretically, but very different Cantonese to anything I'd ever had in, in Hong Kong. Um, and then going back up north to see sort of relatives going to another Chinese restaurant, uh, the dishes were almost entirely different. And I thought, yeah, that was the first time I'd realised how different it is almost as, as if it's evolving into its own food culture here. It is. But, you know, I think people, um, I mean, you're an anthropologist, so you, you'll probably understand exactly where I'm coming from. I think people latch on to kind of um, definitions a little bit too much. Or they, they like to spend way too much time trying to pigeonhole everything just for the sake of kind of convenience or, or kind of mental space. But actually, I always put it like this, you know, uh, the, the job of a chef primarily, regardless of where they are in the world, is to use their skill to uh, cook the ingredients that is available to them, to cook for the people who are around them. And I think if you use that as the kind of the staple definition of what a chef is meant to do, Actually, authenticity is a very kind of fluid kind of term, dependent on time, dependent on location, uh, and depending on on demographic of of clientele. And and sometimes you know people when they experience things such as yourself, and they go, oh, you know, I came, I went, I came back from Hong Kong, and the food was so different. I think sometimes they automatically assume the other to be bad and the one in Hong Kong to be good. But I think that's sometimes the wrong way to look at things. Yeah, because obviously if you travel around China a lot, not all the food in China is great. You can have just as dodgy food as you can, you know, in Xi'an as you can in uh, great food in Xi'an. So it, exactly, you know, and I, I remember when I when I was traveling, I I carried around notebooks and scribbling down everything that um, I thought was interesting, things that I saw for inspiration, bits that I'd, I'd eaten, snacks like soft drinks, even like gummy sweets that had very distinct textures, right? Yeah. Um, and I always say out of every 50, 60 things that I wrote in my notebook, I would probably only ever consider putting one, even possibly on the menu. Because I think we cook for such a different demographic in London. Uh, and I think as a restaurant, we, you know, we are a very particular type of Chinese restaurant. And some of those dishes, they're great when you're in that experience but that doesn't mean that they're automatically suitable for a London clientele in 2023. So one of the things that I noticed about your substack, which you do with Muktadat, is called Exo uh, South. Everyone should check it out. But one of the things you spoke about is sort of the different <clears throat> variations of food. And, and actually, I think the last one you were talking about to sort of the appropriation of different types of cuisine from around the world, etc., but maybe think people would be interested to know where you think that Chinese cooking in, in the UK is now. Is it much more regionalized in terms of taking inspiration from different parts of China rather than just uh, the Cantonese food that perhaps we mainly grew up with, considering the amount of Hong Kong people that were here? Or do you think it's still kind of stuck in its Cantonese anchors? No, you know, I think Chinese food has evolved so much in London. I mean, I, I can't answer for the, the whole of the UK. Because besides London and Eton, I don't eat too much Chinese food 
in the UK because I don't really get out of, of London too much these days. But we're very lucky in, in, in London. And I think, I think we're, we're our own worst enemy in London. I think a lot of people are too quick to kind of go, oh, well, this isn't right. That isn't right. Actually, we're very lucky. If you compare us to North America, you compare us to the whole of Europe, we have a, an incredible uh, regionality that exists for Chinese food in London. You know, there's restaurants, as I said, Xi'an restaurants, Xinjiang restaurants, you know, Citronese hot pot has become like a staple for Chinese food in the, as Cantonese food was in the 80s. That Citronese food is now becoming a well-known cuisine within Chinese cuisine. And then talking professionally, never in my career have I had so much interest from peers with regards to Chinese technique, Chinese ingredients, uh, and Chinese gastronomy in general. And I think that really goes to show the way that Chinese food has become so widely appreciated within the UK. And I think that is very special and very unique uh, in comparison to, as I said, the rest of Europe and even North America. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that there'll be quite a few people surprised to hear that. But the quality of Chinese food, I mean, we go out for dinner for a fair amount of London Chinese food. Although we haven't tried your restaurant yet. We, we will soon. We've had a lot of good Chinese food. You know, that's based on many years of living and working in China. So it's, uh, it's good to be able to, to not miss it too much. But in terms of the, on the wider side, how do you think that British people are, are evolving their tastes for Chinese food and Asian food more generally? Because you just were awarded a, a second Michelin star, I think. And is that right? Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. The, and the first Chinese restaurant to achieve that outside of Asia. Uh Yes, yes. Very well done. But do you think that would have happened five, ten years ago? Do you think that the attitude to Chinese food in, in Europe and the UK more specifically was different then? And then, and actually you are kind of riding a, a crest of a wave of interest in Chinese food, not just your chefs, but the, the, your, fr- your friendly chefs, but the, the public as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I, I wish it was the fact that, you know, I'm such an amazing chef with so much talent <laughs> that it's just shining through. I mean, have to, it's really not, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very circumstantial. And, and, you know, we are in a very privileged position um, at a very privileged moment in time where, you know, I think the Chinese community are really making waves uh, within the UK. Everyone, regardless of whether it's gastronomy or it's um, fine art or it's acting or it's politics. You know, there is this big movement at the moment of second generation, third Chinese generations. Really, what's the anthropological um, heritageization, I think is the term, um, really embracing their pasts and, and trying to influence their futures using it. And I think this is a, a very modern time uh, with the ability and the kind of the the cultural situation that we're in, where it's it's able to flourish, um, and we're very lucky to be in this moment in time. And and I'm merely just one of the participants who are using gastronomy as as the way of expressing uh, my past to a 2023 curious diner. So one of the things that you, you talk about, obviously, in your and your Substack and your podcast, is the anthropology of uh, of food. And I suppose something that sprung to my mind in terms of Chinese food when I first properly experienced it, it felt a very different experience eating a much more focus on the the shared dining experience 
Is that something do you think that it managed to make its way into into Chinese food consumption over in the UK and in the West? Or do you think that you'll never really be able to replicate that traditional Chinese sharing culture outside of a proper Chinese family? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. And I think it is such a, an important definition of how people eat. I think sometimes the, the way people eat is sometimes even more important than actually what is on the plate sometimes. And you know, Michelin are a great example of this because you know, Michelin are a, a guide that rewards restaurants according to what they perceive to be great, good, whatever it is. But, you know, as a guide, they, they're used to judging French cuisine, which is based around the fact that you get three courses mm. and each course you judge them accordingly as a course. So when you talk about whether a dish is good or whether it is bad, you're talking about the balance of flavors within a single dish. And I think when you talk about Chinese cuisine, if you then throw into the, the pot the fact that actually that's not how you eat Chinese food. You know, you eat Chinese food by having a collection of dishes so that the balance of flavor, the balance of texture, the balance of spice is not achieved through a single dish necessarily, but it is achieved through a collection. And I think that's a conundrum, I think, for guys like Michelin, which I think they're, they're dealing with very well. And I think they're dealing with on a daily basis in trying to adapt to this reconstruction of, of what is a meal. I think people in the UK, for example, they need to understand that, you know, the idea of having a a three-course Chinese meal is a cultural construct that was created in the 1970s. It's completely foreign to anyone in China to have a Chinese meal in a three-course meal. It doesn't make sense. It, it, it has no relevance. And when you go to a banquet or something and they say it's a 11-course banquet or a 12-course banquet, they're not talking about 12 courses coming one by one like this Western construct of what a tasting menu is. When they say 12 courses, they normally, they're talking like collections. So they might come in fours, they might come in fives. You'll get a big soup in the middle. You get some, you know, a big steamed fish. But it isn't the idea that you're getting one dish at a time. It's just all bang in the middle. Um, and then if you talk about the, the Han Manchu banquets in the Qing dynasty, you're talking like hundreds of dishes all at the same time. Um, you know, some of them pickled, some of them cold, some of them hot, some of them cured. You know, that's traditionally, culturally, how we eat in China. And I think, you know, when you transpose that onto a Western culture, I think there needs to be a bridge for people to navigate that difference in order to really appreciate the cuisine. Yeah, and, and you're completely right. But I think it's important to note that the way that we eat in the West now is itself a relatively recent construct. I mean, the, the evolution of food in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s was very rapid. And for example, you know, in the 1600s in, in England, you'd often eat big slabs of, of meat, but with meat puddings next to it. And a meat pudding was actually uh, like a sausage. You know, you could have uh, different types of meat, but in a sort of in a skin. And you would have lots of things placed on the table at, at once. And it wasn't until the 1700s, 1800s that vegetables started making an appearance. And that was actually a French construct as well. So over the 1700s, especially in the 1800s, we did see the, the sort of francization, whatever the word is, of food in England. And that has evolved, as you said, and to reach its apogee in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it's what we see today. But for anyone to say that this is the way we've always eaten and, and British food is stuck in this time warp is is, is mistaken. And, and I'm sure that's the same with, with Chinese food as well, even though you've got this sort of the same concept around traditional sharing. The types of food would have changed, etc. Because at the end of the day, Chinese food, like any food, is rooted in, in China's history, right? You must be able to see a lot of the historical stuff that's happened to China through its food. 
Well, yeah, it would have made it a lot easier if um, the the revolutionary uh, revolutionists um, didn't burn down the Forbidden City and every bit of um, kind of archive in there related to kind of the journals of of what the emperors were eating and stuff. But from what we have recollected and what we have managed to dig back up, there is a, a very very rich history of Chinese food. And actually, if anything, it's probably more related to traditional Chinese medicine more so than just history. I think, you know, when you talk about the historical aspect, you're really talking about kind of availability of the ingredients from what I see. But, you know, as a gastronomy, it's 3,000 years old. And, you know, when it comes to technique, there's very few techniques that haven't been explored uh, within Chinese gastronomy, even purely through trial and error. So, so yeah, there, there was a very deep, deep history of, of Chinese food that, for me anyway, relates more to kind of TCM, and kind of Buddhist origins more than anything. TCM being traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And um, I think that it's also important to know that Chinese food is always evolving, right? I mean, look at you. You're the embodiment of <laughs> the evolution of, of Chinese food. You're serving things that wouldn't have been served in China 20 or 30 years ago and maybe not be served widely in China today. But how do you think that Chinese chefs like yourself are you making any impact on Chinese food back in, in China, do you think? Or is it just a one-way street? You know, I, th- I think the world that we live in now, there is no such thing as a one-way street purely because of things like social media. You know, I, I, I see many chefs who, who, just for the sake of convenience, they put themselves on the headings as being kind of modern French chefs or modern British chefs. But actually, if you look at their cuisines, it's, it's very much world cuisine. I think as myself, if I was to purely for myself, um, I think, you know, our cuisine, you know, we call it Chinese. But that really is just for, for the sense of convenience. I think more so what we do is that we're trying to celebrate particular parts of Chinese gastronomy, which in turn celebrate Chinese culture. So, you know, well, you know whether it be celebrating the fact that, you know, China borders 14 other countries and the fact that obviously with that will come massively diverse gastronomies, or we're talking about the art of, of dim sum, and we're trying to make comparisons between kind of European pastry chefs and dim sum chefs. I'm beginning to you know, show the incredible overlay and, and things that they have in common with two seemingly very different arts when people look at it. Or we're talking about, as you said, the sharing aspect. So we're effectively in a really horrible kind of way where we're forcing our guests to eat in this collection way by basically removing a la carte menu. Um, and, and ensuring that all our guests have to embrace this experience when they eat with us. You know, these are all things which I think somewhere along the line have the possibility to basically get people to, to recalibrate their preconceptions and their own histories of the way that they've interacted with Chinese food. Okay, so time to tickle the taste buds a little bit. Tell us about some of your favourite dishes uh, that we could expect at A Wong's. So there's a few, and you know, I'm, I'm very proud of certain dishes. Some of them might be very kind of traditional dishes. There's things like the Shanghai dumpling, which is traditionally a, a soup dumpling, um, where you, you bite into it and you basically get a big flood of soup in your mouth. So we slightly modify it. We, we do something very special with the dough. So we, we laminate the dough about 50 times before we make this dumpling to make it super watertight. And then we increase the amount of soup into it. So it's got a real like strong, rich broth inside. And then traditionally, people the way that you eat it in the streets of Shanghai is that you get a dip of ginger-infused vinegar to dip your dumplings into. And I remember it used to always annoy me that people used to put way too much vinegar. 
to the point where I was like, you're ruining the chef's work. So we changed that slightly. So we basically, we use a hypodermic needle and we inject the vinegar into the dumpling huh. before we serve it. So when the guest eats it, it's a, a single explosion in the mouth with the vinegar mixing with the pork broth. Uh, and we serve it with a tiny bit of pickled tapioca and some candied ginger on top. You know, and the dish in itself is, is very, very traditional. But all I can do is basically find ways that I think complement the dish and really get people to to kind of go, oh, I've never had it like this. I'm going to go back and I'm going to go and try more Shanghai dumplings from other restaurants um, and see where, how I like them and how they're different. And, you know, no, no one Shanghai dumpling is the best or the worst, right? They're just different interpretations of the same dish. Yeah. And it's very much about, you know, just like wine, the more you try, the more you kind of build up this memory of a database of, of, of food memories. And then you get to kind of make your own decisions of what you think is a good one and what you think is also not so good one. And anyone that's been to Shanghai and, is, and has had those dumplings on the back streets and, and experienced lots of different types, just the range is phenomenal. But uh, generally, I've, I've had a couple of bad ones, but generally they are completely amazing and, and wonderful experiences, especially when you're with local people and they're, they're taking pleasure in showing you their favourite restaurants as well. It's a great experience. Sure. You know, I always say, like, you know, in Shanghai, you know, after a night out or halfway through a night out, it's <laughs> sometimes, in a win- sometimes in the winter it's pretty cold. Yeah, yeah. You go to some of these, these street stores, and the Shanghai dumpling, obviously the dough is quite thick. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not because the chef doesn't have the skill to make a thinner dough. I mean, they absolutely do. It's the fact that they're, they're catering to that market. You know, when, when you've had three or four beers or maybe more, you want to have something a little bit more substantial. You want to have more dough along with a soup and a little bit more meat um, so that you can really kind of keep going for the rest of the night. Um, it, it's very much not the fact that Shanghai dumplings have to have really, really thin doughs. It is our choice and my choice as a chef to try to do that. But that's only because it, it's a culinary choice on my part. So it's about to be Christmas. And we actually uh, just recorded another podcast about China and, and Christmas. And one of the things we're talking about is sort of the um, adoption of certain cultural references into China from Western Christmas tradition. But to the fact that many weren't. Um, Turkey obviously isn't widely used in Pad or Christmas Day in China. Do you do anything in your restaurant to sort of bring the the two traditions together, Christmas and, and China? Uh, simplest way, no. <laughs> I, I I think if anything, you know, I I, I like to think that the Christmas spirit that we that we try to bring is is very much through interaction and kind of the warmth and and that kind of that spirit that the staff can bring when they when they're serving the food. I'm not a big fan of changing a menu according to festivities because i think you know some people don't remember like a lot of the dishes that we develop sometimes they can take years to develop um so it's not the case that you know we can just oh well we'll just replace that with turkey or we'll just put some brussels sprouts on that you know or we'll put some parsley <laughs> like that. you know they've taken a long time to develop um and you know any one of our menus in the evening you know it's made up of 18 19 courses each time if anything it's more about celebrating the the beauty of commensality of eating together around a dinner table and that really is, is what all these festivities are always about yeah. regardless if it's chinese new year if it's mid autumn festival if it's you know unfortunately you know the festivals of the dead or it's christmas or it's easter ultimately regardless of culture they always come back to the fact that normally you're sitting around a table with your loved ones trying to share experiences together. And I think actually that's quite a good way to end the podcast because and one of the things that we've tried to do for the number of years we've been doing this now is to, is to show that China is 
different, yes. But actually, there's huge amounts of commonality in everything from politics and economics to culture and food. And actually, it's far better to look at the ways that we've got in common rather than try to look at the differences. And, and the food, I suppose, is one of those things where we can learn from each other, but also really enjoy the different experiences, ingredients and dishes, etc. Um, and I think the world would be a very poorer place if we didn't have that ability to, to tap into those different traditions. But on that note, my final question is, you obviously were born and raised in the UK. You spent a lot of time in China. You run a fantastically successful Chinese restaurant. If you've got one last meal on earth, what would it be? Would it be a Chinese meal? Would it be a cheeky pizza? Where would you go with that from a cultural point of view? It would definitely be Chinese food. No matter how many cuisines I eat around the world, there always comes a, a finite time where I go, you know what? I would just like to have some really homely Chinese food. Normally something very simple, like you know, a steamed uh, sea bass with some white rice with a really beautiful like soy dressing. Nothing complicated. Um, I'm a massive noodle fan, so I will eat noodles in any capacity whatsoever. Yeah, you know, I'm, any, any chef will tell you, you know, the food that we enjoy to eat in private is normally rooted in kind of homely flavors and, and, and things that are really heartwarming and, and, and hugging. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. So, just Fred, what's the address of your restaurant in Pimlico? So, we're in a very non-trendy part of Pimlico. It's in between Pimlico and Victoria. Uh, it's on Wilton Road. Great. About two minutes away from the station. Okay, easy for travellers. And your uh, substack is XO South. And I wish you a very happy Christmas and a fantastic 2023, Andrew. And thank you so much for spending your time. I know you've got it back into the kitchen now, but uh, it's been really good to talk to you. And uh, look forward to hearing more Christmas stars running your way. Ah, thank you. Merry Christmas to everyone. Take care. Bye. Take care.